Hello world and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today we'll be chatting with Dr. Stella Safo, a physician and assistant professor of medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She completed her MD at Harvard Medical School and her MPH at the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Safo is extremely passionate about population health delivery, gender and racial health equity, HIV care, as well as voter engagement. And I hope to speak with her today about the pervasive effects of racial and ethnic inequities in healthcare. I'd also like for us to talk about COVID-19 and specifically how we responded to the pandemic as a society and the challenges now of the COVID vaccine rollout. But let's start from the very beginning. Dr. Safo, what's your story? I'm so glad to be here. So my story really begins with my mom, who is a pediatrician from Ghana. And she trained in Ghana and Nigeria, um, and for reasons of giving our family the kind of best future we could have, came to the U.S. and always told us, you know, it, it hurt me to leave my home country behind. Um, and it's important for me that you guys, my kids, do as much as you can to give back to your communities. So I knew from an early age that I wanted to do medicine because I wanted to basically just be my mom. Um, and so I trained in HIV primary care. I went to Harvard for undergrad med school and public health school with a real focus on global health. And yeah. then I went to Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx because I was really interested in this idea of medicine as a way to address societal ills. And in Montefiore, mm -hmm. we had a program in internal medicine called the Primary Care Social Medicine Program that really thought about how the social determinants of health could be addressed from within the kind of medical paradigm. And with that training, when I finished my medical residency, I went um, and I got an HIV fellowship with HIVMA and then ended up at Sinai working on this hard question of how do we manage the changes that had to happen in healthcare with this new move towards value-based medicine and population health management? How do we manage those changes in a way that would be most helpful for our patients and also um, in a way that would, that would protect our frontline staff? So I worked at Sinai for years, um, served as a senior medical director for clinical transformation. And in that role, got to work with some really amazing people and do some what I think is really amazing work. Um, and uh, basically, since then, I've been thinking about this question of how do we make our health systems um, the best for our patients and our providers and, and really speak to the issues of racial, gender and health equity throughout all the work that I've, I've been engaged to so far. That's incredibly valuable work. Now, as a physician, you've obviously experienced and continue to experience the COVID pandemic on the front lines. Now, what do you think are some of the things we did wrong as a society, especially on the eve of the news that New Zealand is basically COVID free and is venturing back into normalcy and the United States is nowhere near that? What do you think we did wrong? You know, I think the thing that we did wrong, and it's the thing that you do wrong whenever you meet a big challenge or a big enemy, is we underestimated it. You know, and we mm -hmm. underestimated it because we are the 21st century, you know, um, generation of innovators. We have medicines mm -hmm. that have eradicated diseases that decimated societies before. We have technologies that take us, you know, to the moon and back. We, I think as humans, and certainly as Americans, at least I'll speak for us on this side, um, in, in parts of, of the, of the um, Western world have felt so uh, invincible that there hasn't yeah. been a challenge that we haven't been able to meet. And, you know, it's, it's good that we haven't had a world war for decades. And it's good that we haven't had a pandemic for, you know, almost 100 years. But I think what it ended up doing is it made all of us um, 
underestimate the challenge that we were facing. And you know what's mm-hmm. funny about that is that um, we had some warning signs, right? Like, yeah. you know, we, we, we know we have this battle with climate change and we're underestimating it now. We had to face Ebola a few years ago. And yet, yeah. you know, it was something that was kind of across the world, you know, in the global south. And so we didn't really think about it. So we had some warning signs. And yet somehow when the test came, we all failed the test. And, you know, we can put yeah. the blame on our federal government, our local government. But ultimately, I think all of us were a bit complicit in thinking, well, this will be done in a month, two months. Okay, maybe three months. How about this will be done in six months, you know? And we just kept doing that. And I think it speaks to our sense of hubris that we could just handle anything. And, and I think we can and we will. But I think we have to really appreciate the enemy that is COVID. Do you think that at this point, because of the scale that COVID really affected all of us, that that will change the way we handle situations in the future? So with respect to climate change, as you mentioned, will there be a little bit of humility that people might feel with with handling this very looming problem that not only is looming, but it's also something we're facing presently? It's such a great point. I think absolutely. I think the humility that we've all learned with COVID will carry through. You know, there was there's a story that's told that the Obama administration left a playbook, a pandemic playbook for the Trump administration. And the Trump administration essentially put it in a cupboard somewhere and didn't even bother to read it. It's essentially what we're doing now with climate change. These scientists and these activists are telling us this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. And we're all kind of putting that message in a cupboard and saying, oh, we'll get to it when we get to it, or it's not so important. And I think when we're not fighting for our lives with COVID quite so acutely, we're going to stop and say, what other problems are dead in our face, right there in our face, that we are ignoring, that are going to explode and force us to face it? And um, I think climate change is a perfect example of that. Mm. I also wanted to talk a little bit about how COVID and racial and ethnic inequities kind of come together because there's no doubt that the medical establishment has had a tumultuous relationship with black and brown individuals in the general public. And now with COVID, with all of the results coming out with respect to the number of COVID cases, the number of COVID deaths, and now even the number of individuals who are getting the COVID vaccine, there are definitely some disparities. Could you speak to that a little bit as you were and continue to be on those front lines? Yeah, you know, I think the thing that's really been hard for me as a provider is, um, you know, I I see my patients in clinics, so I do outpatient medicine. And when the pandemic first started, um, because my patients, many of them have HIV, they talked about their fears with going outside Mm. and how if they got sick, you know, what would happen to them. And so we counseled them through that. And we got them through that. And then we um, got to this point where we could talk about the vaccine being present and coming. And um, many of my patients were so excited that I got vaccinated and they were just, they were happy that I was safe. And I want to be able to do that to them. And one of the things that I'm finding as a provider in New York is that there just are some structural barriers to getting patients vaccinated, even those that are eligible. Um, You know, the way that we sign up is online, not all the patients can get online. There isn't enough supply. And so, you know, by word of mouth, sometimes it gets filled really quickly and other people who are waiting can't get to it. Um, And so there's a lot of issues around access. And, you know, what matters around access so much is that whenever you have an issue with access, you have to think about who's going to benefit and who's going to lose. And so if you think about access, access says that something is hard to get into. So if you have time, resources, connection, and money, you'll probably be able to get into it. 
If you don't have, if you don't have those things, time, resources, connection, and money, you probably won't get access to that thing. So if you think about COVID, the COVID vaccine as a restricted item that requires access, you can see the ways in which it's going to continue to re-emphasize already present inequities within our society. And so those individuals who may have more um, components to be able to have access, so things like time, they're older, they're retired, they have time, they have children who can, you know, uh, get on the websites for them, or they have money and they can hire someone to help them out. All those folks will be the ones who will be able to kind of go and go first. Those who are working two or three jobs, those who are, you know, not literate in the primary language that these resources are being offered in, those who are, um, you know, any, any of the things you can think of that make it harder, you know, they won't get as much access. And so what you see and what we are seeing are these crazy maps of by zip code where COVID is the highest, and then you overlay that with the same zip codes of where the COVID vaccine is being given the most. And it is mm-hmm. flipped. The places where COVID is the highest are getting the, the lowest zip codes. And before we kind of throw our hands up and say the system is rigged, it's broken, you know, I don't think that anyone who's doing COVID vaccine rollout, you know, the public health folks and others, they're wonderful individuals. They want to do the best that they can do. Um, mm-hmm. It's not because of malice. It's because of the ways that these systems are designed. And it's part of the reason why I'm so passionate about health system design, because the way that we design our health systems give us the outcomes that we, we get. And so what's yeah. needed now is an equity lens. It's saying mm-hmm. maybe we send more vaccines to zip codes that are more higher hit so they have more supply. Maybe we hold some um, you know, uh, appointments for people who are walk-ins who may get off work and then can only come in without an appointment. But we mm-hmm. have to think in a different way. Otherwise, exactly as you've said, the inequities that we already have with COVID disproportionately affecting communities of color, those inequities, we're going to see it in those communities of color not getting vaccinated and the rates and the ways that they need to get vaccinated. Absolutely. And I love that term equity lens because it just speaks to the way in which we need to look at our world. Yeah. Love that. Yep. And so I'm wondering, because of everything that transpired in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter movement, and I think people almost exclusively thought about the BLM movement with respect to police brutality, but Black Lives Matter in so many other contexts as well, including here in the healthcare space. Do you think anything of what transpired in 2020 will have a direct effect on that equity lens in how people receive people of color in the healthcare space? I think absolutely. You know, we we ended up feeling as though we were in two pandemics, the pandemic that has plagued mm-hmm. Um, you know, the world, really, and certainly the United States for hundreds of years, the -hmm. pandemic of racism met the pandemic of COVID. And what COVID did, I mean, what diseases often do, I mean, we saw this with HIV showing us the stigma against individuals who um, were part of the LGBTQ community, um, Mm -hmm. foreigners, like initially Haitians, you know, we we, we see Mm -hmm. what diseases do so well is they put our societies under a microscope and they show us the ways in which, quite frankly, we suck. Right. And so we've always kind of sucked at, you know, being equitable in our societies when it comes to race. And COVID came along and just really showed us, yes, you guys really suck. There were places where, you know, African-Americans make up um, about 20 percent of the population. And in the early months of COVID, black people were making up in those same areas. So they made up only 20 percent of the population. They were making up almost 80 percent of the deaths. I mean, these numbers were so stark and so you know, horrifying that it forced you to say this, this thing is here. So 
you know, I think absolutely there's a way in which these these things coming together and the murder on screen of George Floyd and the protests that followed from it converged with this global pandemic to say the very things that are driving the higher rates of infection, hospitalization and mortality for, you know, uh, BIPOC communities, um, Black, Indigenous and people of color communities, those very things are the same things that have been structurally and institutionally implemented in our, into our, our, our racist, um, you know, environment and our racist system. And I think mm-hmm. that it was a lesson that um, certainly many of us live and so we know, but it was a lesson that we as a country and we as a group of countries had to really look at and understand and really reckon with. Absolutely. Now, because, as you said, there were so many of us who had the lived experience, so it wasn't like there was anything terribly new. What were the conversations that you had with your non-BIPOC individuals within the healthcare space like? Was there an element of disbelief if you were to relay that those really horrifying statistics that we knew were pervasive, not necessarily with respect to COVID, but other diseases and other reasons why individuals from within the BIPOC community might need to seek out medical care or might die. Mm -hmm. What was the reception? You know, one thing that I was really, um, I was inspired by is that a lot of the reception that I got actually was anger. You know, I don't know if, if, yeah, I don't know if um, most people remember this, but right before George Floyd was murdered about a week before there was a woman in Central Park who called the police on Amy Cooper. Exactly. And she did Mm -hmm. that because she was basically just just mad at him and wanted to find a way to um, get back at him. And it was Mm -hmm. it was a and she is a liberal. She lived in New York, you know, all Mm -hmm. the kind of people were really kind of shocked and disbelieving of that. And then a week later, George Floyd happened and, you know, it uncovered all the things that have been happening with Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey. Um, and mm-hmm. when I say that the, some of the people that I talked to who were, um, you know, white people um, that that had had known of this stuff, it, what, yeah. what had happened essentially was that they had gone from a week of like, well, that Central Park story was interesting, okay, you know, mm-hmm. to a few weeks after when we were really in the thick of the Black Lives Matter protests, many of them yeah. were, were outraged. Many of them were really, really upset with me and with us. Um, mm-hmm. about how individuals were treated. And, and you know, I don't want to make it sound simplistic as though they didn't know, but I think mm-hmm. having it just so clearly in your face, um, yeah. that that response of anger and rage was refreshing for me to see because as a Black woman in America, you know, that's something mm-hmm. that I carry all the time. I'm always afraid that something may happen. I'm always afraid that something could happen to my three brothers, um, mm-hmm. you know, to my loved ones, to me. Um, yep. to my patients, you know, and, and so it was, it was, it was kind of a nice moment to say, oh, hi, welcome. Welcome to mm-hmm. this side of the world where we have to look at racism. We have to face it. And the only response, honestly, when you see just how bad it is, is one of rage. Why yeah. is it that someone can be, you know, have their neck pressed on for eight minutes until mm-hmm. they die and people just stand there and do nothing? How? In what world? Um, mm. And and you know I think I think that 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 the feeling of rage you know I think that there can be such a thing as eloquent rage where you channel it in a way that is helpful and can lead to action and so I, I really I had a lot of conversations where people were really angry they were really angry at what they saw and how things were and you know I it it felt a little bit like oh it took you this long to see just how bad it is but you know what Ooh, facts yeah we get there when we get there true now post rage. 
What do you think non-BIPOC members of the medical profession can do to be better allies to us? Not necessarily the, because I, I consider myself on the patient side, but also to someone like you who's already within the medical profession, what can they do to be an ally to you and to an ally to me who would be a patient of one of your colleagues? I cannot under, like overemphasize rather the importance of uh, being a, a a bystander and a true ally. People love the word ally. Mm-hmm. I'm an ally. Oh yes. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have any meaning if all your you know allyship is is a performance. Like you post a Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter um, you know poster, but then you don't actually speak up when you see your minoritized coworker get degraded or spoken down to. You know, I I had actually once worked with a person who was always so ready when it was just one-on-one conversations to tell me all the ways that I had been talked down to, disparaged, you know, dismissed. Um, And, um, you know, kind of as a way of showing that that this person was, you know, got it and was allied with me. And yet when Mm. it was time for her to really speak up and say what she had seen, she was, it was crickets. And so I often think about that because I think, you know, it takes a lot of bravery to use your voice. It takes a lot of, you know, overcoming your own fears. You're afraid you could be disciplined or challenged or lose in some way. But no Mm -hmm. one's asking you to lie or overtell something or stick your nose somewhere. All that is often asked, you know, of of individuals who want to help is to bear witness, to say, Mm -hmm. you know, I saw this person speak down to this other person and that's not okay. And I'm going to say something. Um, it starts to change the culture and the environment. And also, it lets these perpetrators feel less emboldened. They don't, you know, Absolutely. silence is complicity in almost every single situation. And so I would say the, the one of the easiest ways to help is to be active in the way that you present yourself as an ally. Absolutely. I was nodding so vigorously because <laughs> I've had that exact experience happen to me. I talked about that this in my last episode where if that happens to me, and it has happened where I am either spoken down to or berated in some way, and I get a text afterwards from mm-hmm. someone saying, oh, that was awful. No, no, no. Don't send the text. I don't want the text. Yep. I don't want it. Yep. Because if it truly bothered you to your core, you wouldn't have been able to stop yourself from saying something in that moment. I love that. And I want to say that part of the reason why you get the text is that that person needs to absolve themselves. Yes. And what I want in this world is that I want none of us to feel okay until we're all okay. And so the yes. things that, that you do to make yourself feel okay, oh, I re, I retweeted that Black Lives Matter post, you know, you feel mm-hmm. okay. Oh, I donated mm-hmm. to whatever, whatever, you feel okay. Think about how you translate that into real action because yes. when you placate yourself and you tell yourself that some of the performative action is action, what it does mm-hmm. is it just slows us down. And yes. what it does for the people who are experiencing these abuses is it's, it's a reinforcing of the gaslighting right? Mm, they, yes. they start to think, did I experience what I experienced? I'm not sure. Did, and, and then they can silence themselves. They can make themselves smaller. They can exit that space. And so mm-hmm. the talent and the, you know, the kind of collective brilliance that we all bring also gets affected. Um, and so I, yes. I really agree with that. Save, save that post analysis text. No one needs it. Um, if you can't yeah. speak up in the moment, then don't, don't come and tell me how, you know, you ride with me. No, you don't because you would have been there in the moment. Precisely. When I saw how vocal and active, again, we're talking about active measures of changing the world that we live in, how active you are on Twitter and what you do 
with your life's work is so admirable. And so my question now is how you think your background, you kind of answered it somewhat implicitly at the very beginning, your background played into who you are today and what is important to you and why you ride so hard for us and other people who, who just need to be represented, all of us minoritized individuals. You know, it's something that um, I struggle with sometimes because I'm not actually someone who loves the spotlight. Um, mm. I often call it minding my own business, but I really love minding my own business and just yeah. kind of just, you know, just doing the work and just, but, you know, I, I think like many people were, was really inspired in 2016 when I watched um, the eight years of the Obama presidency come to an end and someone who I thought was not fit for office take over and determine so much of our lives from our health care our reproductive rights, our mm -hmm. ability to be, you know, our, to ex exhibit and be our, ourselves in, in the workplace, our sexual orientation, everything was impacted by that decision. And I thought, um, I can no longer be someone who kind of is quiet in this world. It's really important mm -hmm. that each of us uses our voice in the spaces that we are in. I think the other thing that happened to me personally is that I experienced a really horrific um, workplace, uh, a toxic workplace culture that led me to to lose a lot at the time. You know, I lost oh. um, a very dear kind of professional and um, personal relationships um, that I lost with that experience. I lost career opportunities that I was really invested in. And sometimes what happens with loss is that you, you, you look at it and you say, do I want to be the kind of person that looks and experiences this loss and reacts from that? Or do I want to make it better so that others don't have to experience the same thing? Um, and I think mm -hmm. between looking at the larger political environment and then what I experienced um, at my workplace, it really brought me to a place of saying, I want to be the kind of person that makes this world even just a little bit better so the next person that comes after me you know, can, can walk in that path. And, and that's really yeah. what's led me to do a lot of the work that I've done. Thank you. I can't thank you enough for what you do because I know what it, it, it feels like to feel that discomfort because I think for so long it was just easy to be the representation, right? Yeah. So you enter these spaces, spaces, these academic spaces, these medical spaces, and you go, so long as I'm here and I'm doing my people right and I'm representing us well, that is my fight, you know, yes. that is how I, yes. how I do my part. And I, I went through a very similar experience where I just thought, I don't think that's enough anymore. And mm -hmm. it, it was very similar in 2016. The minute you said 2016, I knew exactly where you were going because I was like, oh, we all felt it, didn't we? Yes, we did. <laughs> we really did feel that we could feel a seismic shift. Mm -hmm. The world was forever different. And I don't think a lot of people understood why it felt like an attack on the self. Like it, mm -hmm. it felt personal. Um, in the last couple of minutes, can you tell us about the lawsuit that you're currently working on and the bill that hopefully will be passed? Yeah. So I um, and eight other individuals who are employees at Mount Sinai Health System in New York um, suffered race, age, and gender discrimination um, with things including being called names in the workplace, being oh demeaned God. in other ways, um, having our work um, undermined. Um, and in some cases, um, having our, um, our pay um, differentiated by gender than others who were in the institution being retaliated mm -hmm. against. And there's a whole bunch of things that we experience as the kind of eight collectives that we outline in a lawsuit, a federal lawsuit that's being um, evaluated now. And, you know, once you're in a lawsuit, there's, you're, you're in a world of pain that no one ever wants to be in. But we chose to do this because we thought it was important to 
um, help our institution to get better. Um, I still see patients at Mount Sinai. I feel dearly for my colleagues there and my my patients there. I, I have such affection for, for them, many of them, um, because it's a great and wonderful institution that does really important work. I just think that our leadership could lead us better when it comes to the issues of addressing racism um, and sexism within the workplace. And so um, as part of our advocacy, we worked with council member Rosenthal, Helen Rosenthal in New York City, and um, are hopeful that we'll be able to pass a bill um, that addresses um, gender and race-based discrimination in academic medical centers and in all medical centers within New York City um, by having a separate advisory board um, that would that would work with these you know these hospitals and would work with individuals who experience these types of discriminatory um, experiences to really uh, ensure that there is accountability. Um, that bill is being decided on today, and something pretty terrible happened um, this morning in our press conference, which is that. Um, individuals who didn't want to see that bill pass and did, wanted to essentially silence us came on to the virtual Zoom press conference and um, porn bombed us with images and sounds of disgusting porn essentially on um, the call. And it was so much. It was just nonstop continuous for about two minutes straight um, and that uh, the call had to end. But what these fools don't know is you can't you can't stop the truth. You can't silence people who are working you know, for justice. And so we got back on another call. We kept going and um, the bill will hopefully be uh, voted on, decided on this afternoon. Um, and if it passes, it'll be because of the advocacy of our group, Equity Now at Mount Sinai, but it'll also be because of brave, you know, lawmakers who have been have been just fearless and saying, we're not going to let this happen to our citizens. Um, and so to those who targeted us, you know, um, in the press conference, like too bad, we're, we're going to move forward and we're always going to move forward. I'm so sorry that it happened. I've said it before, but I can't say it enough. It's so disturbing and disgusting that someone would try to do that, that people would try to do that. But the, people are emboldened now more than ever to do these kinds of awful things, yeah. to stand in the path of justice. But like you said, they can try all they want but you have some amazing individuals at Equity Now at Mount Sinai and people in politics who care about equity, who care about fairness, who care about justice. And I'm so excited to see what happens this afternoon. Fingers crossed. It's all going to be very, very positive. Thank you so much, Dr. Safo. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a true pleasure.